I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about. I think the... you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think in a world that is so divided, there's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today, who do you trust? My first day as Associated Press Bureau Chief in Mexico was a Monday in September 2010. This is Kathy Corcoran. She is a veteran journalist and author of the book In the Mouth of the Wolf. I was at home sleeping or just waking up, and um, I the I got a phone call at 6 a.m., and it was an interim editor for Latin America. So he called me and he said, um, we've received a threat. It came to a journalist, um, and it came via text message. It was signed by the cartel. The whole idea of these groups was they wanted to silence people. This happened a lot with the local media that the, that the cartels would order them to write certain stories or not cover certain stories. And so it came in that pattern where it was telling the AP that we had to write a story or we would receive a special visit. And then it listed the address of the AP bureau in Mexico City. It's a big bureau. There are a lot of people working there. Immediately I said, we have to take this very seriously. The cartel wanted the Associated Press to write a story that would smear the president of Mexico and a rival cartel. Threats like this were common, just not usually to large international press outlets like the AP. But Corcoran says she did not even consider caving to the cartel. Oh, not for a second. Because once you succumb to that, those kinds of threats, you can never get out from under their control. And it would make the AP yet one more source of information that the public couldn't trust in an environment where both the cartels and the government were actively trying to undermine the free press. People need to understand what we do and, and why we're important. Because when if we get taken away, it affects, it's going to affect you. It's affect, it's, it will affect how you can operate in your daily life if you're only given propaganda or if you're only given a story from one side. And I think people need to understand the risk isn't for us. The risk is for them, for the citizens. Is the press really that important? I know it's protected in the Constitution and all, but why really? Barely a third of Americans right now say they have even a fair amount of trust in the media. That's according to Gallup polls. People think the mainstream media is biased or sloppy or out to get their favorite politicians or celebrities. Are they right? What happens when we don't trust the people who bring us the news? What happens when we start to see journalists as enemies rather than allies of democracy and truth? And is any of this something you and I need to be worried about? Well, that's what we're exploring this hour. Kathy Corcoran did not become a journalist because she wanted to be well-liked. People never like reporters. I mean, we've always been very low and, you know, we're down there with car sales, used car salesmen and congressmen. But when Corcoran chose a career in journalism during her senior year at Notre Dame, it felt like a noble calling. The Vietnam War had ended, in part thanks to the Pentagon paper reporting by the New York Times and Washington Post. All the President's Men was a hit movie starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman as handsome, scrappy journalists uncovering the Watergate scandal that brought down Nixon. There was a sense that that the media could change things for the better, could root out corruption, could actually make good, I guess. Many journalists, believe it or not, really believe that. We really believe in the importance of freedom of expression, freedom of information, and that when we go to work every day, we're, we're preserving the public's right to know. And so in that sense, it is kind of a bug or a vocation. Once you have that sense of importance, you really feel like you're contributing something. D did you ever really feel like the, the reporting that you were doing was causing change to happen in a way that was like actually doing something for people? 
Yes. And, and I think, again, that's why we do it. In one case, I was working for the Denver Post and um, there, there was a, a person who had a nonprofit and was, she was trying to get United Way money. She had a battered women's shelter. And in those days, the United Way was everywhere. She pointed out that there were no um, charities run by people of color who were funded by the United Way. And so I wrote a story about it. I wrote many stories about it and it actually led to the United Way. They completely threw out their funding process and they redid it because there was so much public concern. And how'd that feel like? And, you know, what did that, what did that mean to you as the journalist working on that story? I, I think that's our job because we want the public to know. We, you know, we want to say, look at this to give them the ability to make the changes. And there was, there were community meetings. There was a, a lot of noise about the articles. Kathy Corcoran spent the first part of her journalism career on the West Coast, occasionally flying south to Latin America on reporting trips. That is when she started to get a glimpse of what it's like when the press is not free to do their job safely. When I came to Mexico in 2008 full-time, that's when things started to change. And, and journalists started getting killed in greater numbers. The government would always say, well, they were corrupt and they got crossways with whoever was paying them off. Um, they were like, don't look at these like you would look at if a journalist was killed in the United States. It's not the same. It's true, says Corcoran, that there are and have been journalists in Mexico being paid by the cartels or crime organizations or even corrupt politicians to write stuff. But as the killings escalated, it became harder to explain every murder as just a corrupt journalist getting caught up in a bad business. By the time Corcoran became the AP bureau chief in 2010, Mexico was already one of the most dangerous places in the world for journalists, and she could sense that something was changing. It wasn't just kinda shady beat reporters from small publications getting killed anymore. Sometimes pretty well-known reporters and photographers were turning up dead and mutilated, and there wasn't any evidence that they'd been taking bribes. Investigations into those murders still went nowhere, if an investigation even happened. Then came that threat from the cartel to the AP on Corcoran's first day on the job. People would always ask me, were you scared? And the answer is no, because I couldn't be. I had to manage the situation. In my five years as bureau chief, I thought about security of our journalists every single day and every story. And it was because of the whole changing landscape in the country. Those changes came to a head in 2012. I was getting on a plane to go to a conference in the United States. And I was just checking the news because I always checked the news 24-7 when I had that job. And right before I had to put my phone in airplane mode, I read on, on the um, AP wire that another journalist had been killed and I read the name. It was Regina Martinez-Perez, a very well-known reporter at a very well-respected national magazine in Mexico. Kathy Corcoran had even once tried to hire her to write for the AP. They hit her. It was the first time in a, a killing involved a journalist who I had personal contact with and who I had a better knowledge of. Martinez-Perez was based in Veracruz, a state known for crime and government corruption. But she had a reputation of avoiding coercion. She was fearless and principled. She didn't even cover cartels or crime. She covered government affairs. None of the typical excuses for the murder of a journalist made sense here, says Corcoran. They are going after real reporters. Even for me sitting in the airplane, the fact that they went after her was a moment of, no, this is about silencing the press. Undoubtedly, an invisible line had been crossed. Those sort of like unspoken rules of the game suddenly changed. And everybody knew that. They would go after anybody. Nobody was safe. And there was actually an exodus of reporters. Reporters fled 
the state after that killing. And national publications pulled their correspondence out of the state. They didn't feel like it was safe there. And so you actually had a vacuum of the people who were doing really real reporting were saying, oh, well, if they got her, then I'm next. So they had to leave. They had to go into exile. Or there were reporters who were being paid by the government to just write the happy news. And so they would continue writing the happy news and they wouldn't be in the crosshairs. So so there was an effective shutdown of any independent critical information in the state at a time when there were all kinds of crimes being committed by the state and no scrutiny. So it was a very effective strategy by whoever was behind it. The murder investigation never led to any clear suspects or convictions. But Kathy Corcoran did her own investigation, and she believes corrupt politicians likely had Martinez Perez murdered for getting too close to the truth about their criminal activities. Corcoran's new book, In the Mouth of the Wolf, details her investigation, which she hoped might spark outrage from readers in other countries and pressure the Mexican government to act. Journalists are being murdered in a democracy in in numbers that are unheard of anywhere outside of a war zone. And nothing is being done about it. So when you looked north, um, uh, you know, across the border to America uh, from Mexico, did these experiences, have they colored the way you think about the state of journalism in the United States? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that became one of the reasons I wrote the book. I wanted to bring this issue to a wider audience, just to say, think about this, what does it mean? But as the climate began to change in the United States, it it became to me a cautionary tale because, you know, I had been a reporter for 30 years before I ever heard anyone call us the enemy of the people. We are in big trouble with the press. They are truly the enemy of the people. They are the enemy of the people. There were always adversarial relationships with the press, but to actually cast us as the enemy of the people, an enemy of the democracy, I'd never seen that in my own country ever. But you see it in other countries all the time. And you see it in Mexico where the government could just outright dismiss someone as corrupt if they get killed. And that people didn't have the confidence to say, no, you're wrong. People kind of went, yeah, reporters are kind of corrupt. So yeah, they're probably right. So you don't have to kill journalists in order to silence or, 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 or um, disempower the press. <laughs> All you really have to do is find a way to convince the public that the press can't be trusted. Because the press can't do its job if the public doesn't trust it. Exactly. When, when, when a government starts saying they're not necessary, they're liars, they're corrupt, they make things up. And, and what you need to do is believe me not what you're reading in the media. And so that's when the story for me became about the United States and not just Mexico. Mm. I would never argue that it's anywhere near as dangerous as Mexico, but if you let this narrative take its natural course, that's where you end up. Kathy Corcoran is former bureau chief for the Associated Press in Mexico. She's author of the new book, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the true cost of silencing the press. So how did we get here? To a place where it feels normal to distrust journalists and politicians feel comfortable vilifying the press? A big piece of the puzzle lies in the history of the American press itself. For a long time, readers did not expect objective, unbiased news reporting, and the press didn't promise it. And many of them weren't even interested in reporting news if you go far enough back. They were interested in getting the best story that could sell the most papers. When the press changed its tune and made objectivity its calling card, that's when the public started to expect it and the trust problems began. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. If you ask Americans today why they don't trust the media, the main reason is bias. 
According to Pew Research, both Democrats and Republicans are unlikely to trust a news source they see as opposing their perspective. So conservatives don't trust MSNBC and liberals don't trust Fox News. Basically, every human being has what's called confirmation bias. The idea that you take in the facts that conform with the worldview uh, that you already have and dismiss the ones that conflict with it. Kevin Lerner is a professor of journalism history at Marist College. He says that while humans have always tended to distrust information they disagree with, it's a relatively new thing to apply this concept to the news media. Back when America's founders wrote the Bill of Rights, saying that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, they were not thinking of the press as any kind of organized news media with a noble mission as objective watchdogs. When the First Amendment went into effect, there, there was no such thing. We're talking about literally the press as a machine. Uh, it would be like saying the, the freedom of the laser printer today. But at the time, they meant literally freedom of the printing press. So there was not really a press corps the way we think of it today. Colonial newspapers were essentially uh, the playthings of their owners, right? So Benjamin Franklin owned a printing press. He was a printer. He put whatever he wanted into the Pennsylvania Gazette. The other form of newspaper were political newspapers that were owned by political parties and made no pretense to objectivity. And many of them weren't even interested in reporting news if you go far enough back. In the 1830s, we see the rise of something called the Penny Press, which were the first newspapers that the average person could really pick up. And the newspapers were not really particularly interested in finding out what actually happened. They were interested in getting the best story that could sell the most papers. A newspaper called the New York Sun, which was one of the very first Penny Press papers, uh, published a, about a week-long series about a Scottish astronomer had discovered through a new high-powered microscope uh, bat people living on the moon. Giant humanoid bats living in colonies uh, on the moon. And also that there were beaver people on the moon. Uh, and they never apologized for it. They just stopped the story and <laughs> moved on with life. <laughs> So the earliest newspapers in America weren't promising anything along the lines of objectivity or even truth. But the public didn't complain because they didn't expect those things. The idea of a press that was important to democracy wouldn't crop up until probably the end of the 19th and into the early 20th century as what we think of as the press today starts to professionalize. First, you had the creation of newswire services like the Associated Press which meant the same articles would appear in newspapers across the country, from California to New York, rural and urban communities alike, conservative and liberal. And therefore, it would have to be news that would be acceptable to all of those audiences. And then at the same time, we get the beginnings of something like the New York Times, and the current owners, the family has owned it uh, since, uh, I believe, the 1870s or 1880s. And they had always had the idea that the New York Times was going to be sober and detached and analytical, um, but that it was just going to report the day's facts. And that is the model that sort of won out among the journalism schools, right? So as these journalism schools and professional organizations are forming in the late 19th and early 20th century, that kind of seriousness seemed like something that would get journalists professional credibility. And this idea that there could be one set of facts that everyone would agree on. It was partially a commercial move uh, by publishers because they thought that they could get the widest audience if they offended the fewest people. Mm. Uh, but it was also based in this sort of noble idea that had come out of journalism schools and theorists of journalism and press associations. Uh, so that became the dominant, quote-unquote, correct way to do journalism. Sometime in the 1950s, that was a, a period of sort of peak objectivity as king. This was a time when there were just a handful of TV networks, and most people got their news from a local paper. As media started promising objectivity, consumers began to expect it. But in the coming decades, many journalists began to chafe against the expectation that their reporting be bland and unbiased, says Lerner. 
journalists prior to the 60s didn't require a college degree. If you're going to be a journalist, you just um, found your way into a newsroom, started as a copy runner, and then you'd work your way up to being a reporter. Uh, But with this professionalization movement and things like the GI Bill, which sent far more Americans to college and university than ever before, um, they were an educated class. They'd gone to college and seen protests against the Vietnam War or the women's movement um, or the civil rights movement, or they'd covered the civil rights movement. Um, And many of them began to feel that this idea of objectivity was really an idea that was in in service of the people who were already in power rather than pushing back against power. So the idea is supposed to be that objectivity was going to present both sides of a matter equally. It, they saw problems with this idea of false balance, that you can't always put two ideas on an equal footing. And they began to realize that Um, portraying things the way they had always been was in itself a kind of bias. These professional, college-educated journalists believed the press had a higher purpose than just reporting both sides. You saw it in stories about the Vietnam War and Watergate. When the facts of a story cast the president of the United States in an unfavorable light, journalists felt less obligated to give the president equal space in the story to spin his own version of events. Most readers may not have picked up on the shift away from straight objectivity, but the people being reported on sure did. Both Presidents Nixon and Johnson complained loudly about media bias when news reports were critical of them. So has every president since. But while this subtle shift away from complete, unbiased objectivity was steadily underway in newsrooms across the country, the reading and viewing public never really got the memo. They went on assuming that objectivity was still king, and news outlets didn't have any reason to say otherwise. Till about uh, the year 2000, which happens to be the year that I graduated from journalism school, which is when everything fell apart. That's when Lerner says the internet cut the financial legs out from under the news media. First with websites like Craigslist draining classified advertising money, Then Google and Facebook took away the rest of the ad revenues. Because it's much more economical for for an advertiser to use targeted advertising than it is to pay for a quarter page ad in, say, the New York Times. So news outlets were left scrambling for a piece of that online ad pie and casting about for an audience who might be willing to pay for their news. And so we get a bit of a disaggregation from this period in the 80s where you picked up the one newspaper in town because that's where the news was and where the entertainment was. And you started to get back into something much more like the 1830s where there were many more options and you could find the publication that really suited you uh, and follow that one. And so there's a bit of a fragmentation of what used to be called the mainstream media and those publications, those legacy publications that existed in that era of objectivity have tried to scramble to define themselves. The legacy publications he's talking about are big national papers like the New York Times, who built an entire brand on being the definitive source of news for the nation. But in the era of cable TV and the internet, trying to be the paper or TV news show that everyone trusted just didn't work anymore. Media needed to be more factional, more niche to make money. Sure, legacy outlets like The Times had been slowly backing away from the goal of complete and total objectivity for the reasons we just explained. But that did not mean they were ready to up and declare themselves liberal or conservative. They've backed themselves into a corner a little bit because they've preached objectivity for so long. And so here we are. Most Americans don't trust the media because they think it's biased. And many media outlets today are openly biased because that's a good way to make money when consumers have an all-you-can-eat buffet of options. But if you drill down into exactly what Americans mean when they say the media is biased, it's that a station or paper doesn't align with their own politics or worldview. Now, mainstream media outlets from NBC Nightly News to NPR to The New York Times have resisted the pull to 
pick a political side in pursuit of profits, and they loudly protest when accused of bias. But here's the uncomfortable truth, says Kevin Lerner. I I would say that really there is no true objectivity in journalism. Um, Every human being has a point of view. Every act of journalism is an act of choice. You are choosing which people to interview, uh, which events to cover, uh, which quotations to use. And in making those choices, you're not being purely objective. You are making judgments. So I'd say to some extent, there never was true objectivity. Um, But to be truly objective, I don't think is to be human. Uh, And journalism is still very much a human activity. If objectivity is impossible because you're human, people are, (laughs) journalists are humans, um, can we identify clear biases that do exist in the mainstream media today? I I think you have to, this is complicated because I, and it's complicated for individual news consumers because it requires great levels of media literacy that I think we don't have in this country. Um, I'm a journalism professor, right? I teach this all the time. And it's very hard for me sometimes when I see a story in a publication I haven't read to know what that publication represents. And what that means is there's a burden on news consumers to educate themselves all the time uh, for every one of them. Um, The New York Times is a very large news organization. I would say they are not as objective as they claim to be. I would say that they are generally an institutional center-left news organization. And that you can read the New York Times and get a pretty good idea of how they mesh with your own worldview, whether that is the same worldview as the New York Times or not. Would you would you like to see news organizations acknowledging that? Yes. I mean, would it help yeah. if the New York Times said, most of the people we employ are college educated from a certain, you know, elite background. We acknowledge center left bias. So when the Fox News people call us, you know, a liberal bastion, we think that's unfair, but we also, that's not entirely wrong. So here's what we're doing. We're acknowledging this is our particular bias. Do with it what, we, what you will. Yeah, that would be a great editorial statement for the New York Times or for any publication substituting what their own biases are. So 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 if if major news outlets would stop clinging to this promise of objectivity quite so strongly, they might actually um, be able to increase public trust or at the very least they could um, kind of defang the criticism <laughs> coming from the opposite side of the political spectrum. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think that is... I think that's true. And I think it's very difficult for a big news organization to do something like that because they've been trying to speak to everyone. Uh, and maybe you can never speak to everyone. Do you think it's a problem that that uh, public confidence in the in the press, in the media, is is as low today as it is? Yes, I do. What's essential to democracy is a shared understanding of the world. And an organized news media that is trusted can be one of the best ways to get to that shared understanding of facts and community. The way things are organized now is not necessarily essential. We do not necessarily need to have newspapers. Um, We need some way to communicate with each other. We need some way to find a common understanding. And I think the press could be that in its best version. And so if it can revive some kind of general consensus that there is a set of facts and that we disagree about what to do with them, then it, then it would be an essential part of democracy. Uh, if it falls apart into fragmentation and partisanship like it was in, say, the 1820s, um, then that would be very bad news. What, what would your advice be to the media if they want to play that role? How, how, be, how to best revive public trust in, in their work? Uh, I think acknowledging that they are human organizations is key. Just acknowledging their process, exposing their process, showing people how they do their work. I think there's work that news consumers need to do. Um, you have to do your work to try to understand where the news that you are consuming is coming from. And I think that that 
is difficult because in some ways it means the, um, the work has to be done by the patients here. Um, it has to be done by those news consumers. It's, it's a shared responsibility. Kevin Lerner is a professor of journalism at Marist College and author of the book Provoking the Press, More Magazine and the Crisis of Confidence in American Journalism. So let's explore this shared responsibility idea a bit further. How can we become more clear-eyed consumers of the news? Well, let's start by just acknowledging that it is getting harder by the day. The media landscape has profoundly changed in our lifetime. This is Sam Weinberg, professor of education at Stanford. I research how people decide what to believe online. I grew up at a time where there were three main TV stations, and there wasn't a whole lot of difference among them. And um, now you have, what, hundreds of cable stations. And then you have a media environment where people increasingly get their news online, which is based on eyeballs. It's based on keeping people's eyeballs on a screen and clicking. It's driven by clicks. And so you have a very different set of incentives that in many ways have diminished the quality of journalism across the board, whether it's on the left or on the right. Okay, so there is just a lot more information for us to wade through as consumers. But Weinberg says the traditional news outlets we consider trustworthy have also blurred the lines between what's factual reporting, what's opinion, and what's paid advertising. Advertisements are masquerading as news stories. And all of the big media Outlets are in on the game. The Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or the BBC, again, all of them are in on it. It is the fastest growing area in advertising. And why? Because it works. Here's how. Traditional advertising looks like an ad. Just by looking at it, you can see that it's different from the articles in a newspaper or magazine. But this new stealthy advertising looks just like a news article with a headline and author's name. There will be some fine print somewhere saying it's an ad, but it's designed to fool you. People have an incredibly difficult time telling the difference between a news story and an ad, which is really dressed up in the costume of a news story. So now I'm thinking that the fact that public trust in... in institutions at large, but in the media in particular, the fact that it's at such a low is actually great news because what I'm hearing you say is that we need to trust nothing, at least on first glance, that we're coming across in print, on air, or, you know, clearly online. I'm going to recoil from that formulation. Okay. With your permission, with your permission because it's exactly, it's exactly what let me, let, me, let me just dive a little bit into history. So we hear a lot about in, uh, disinformation. Actually, the term comes from the Russian. It's a, it's a Leninist term, disinformatia. And what is the goal of disinformatia? The goal of disinformatia, contrary to popular belief, is not to change your opinion on an issue. It is to create muddled thinking. It is to create a sense of, I can't believe anything, that you will believe Comrade Lenin, you will believe Comrade Stalin. That's exactly the goal of disinformation, to get us to a point where we say, we can't believe anything, we just believe what the strong leader says. That is extreme. Okay, so so we need to be able to trust. We shouldn't just throw our hands in, but what you're saying is that we should cast a, cast a, a, a at least a, a measure of skepticism upon every piece of information that we come across and then dig in to do some work. I, I, I'm, I'm going to offer an alternative to skepticism because skepticism is a slippery slope into nihilism. And I'm very scared of nihilistic stances because I think they are a ripe seedbed for for totalitarians and, and, and dictators. All right, you're humbling me here, Dr. Weinberg. So tell me how I should be approaching this. I, I want you to approach it like a carpenter. I want you to measure twice and cut once. I want your stance to be not one of skepticism, but one of caution. I actually am an incredible fan of the internet. I think the internet is is two things at once. It's the best fact-checking device that human beings could ever, ever have invented. 
at the same time as being the best bias-confirming device that human beings could have ever come up with. And so the question is, how do you use this amazing, amazing resource? When it comes to figuring out if a media outlet is generally trustworthy, Weinberg has this advice. Do they correct their mistakes? I'll give you two examples from both sides of the political spectrum. Both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, both of them have particular points of view, but both of them are credible news sources because when they make an error that has been pointed out to them, they will issue a correction. And that is a, an emblem of credibility in journalism, whereas a site like Breitbart, when they make errors, no corrections. They just go on to the next thing. So that's what to keep in mind when you're dealing with a news source you're familiar with. But about half of U.S. adults say they get at least some of their news from social media. And in that space, it's trickier to tell if the information is trustworthy. So let's imagine you are scrolling on Facebook and come across a post that links to a website you don't recognize. How do you know if the claims are legit? Well, Sam Weinberg has done this experiment in his laboratory with people countless times. And here's what usually happens. Now, the typical user is going to look at this and say, wow, you know, first of all, it looks professional and, and it is professional. And then they're going to go up to the about page and they're going to spend a great deal of time using their critical thinking skills about this site. If a group is trying to pull the wool over your eyes, the worst place you can go is to their about page. Let me give you another example. You will look at many college and university websites and they will say, dot coms are bad, dot orgs are good. That means it's a nonprofit. That means that they go through some type of process as an organization. Do you know what it takes to get a dot org? Do you have a dog at home? <laughs> I don't have any animals. I have some, I have some plants. Could my sunflowers get a dot org? <laughs> juliesunflowers.org would take about 15 minutes and $15. .org has been an open domain since its advent on the internet. And this whole idea that somehow .org means something has been foisted on the American public and taught to our students. And so, and it is exploited by bad actors. Okay, so steer clear of the about page and don't get fooled by the .org designation. Here's what to do instead. Well, in this particular instance, the first thing, and this is from research that we did with some of the most respected publications in the United States, both on the left and on the right, and look for commonalities among the people that they employ in-house called fact-checkers. These are people a newspaper hires to comb through stories and verify every claim before it gets published. So what do they do when they come across a website that's unfamiliar? They almost immediately leave that page and they search the name of that organization on the broader web. We call this a process of lateral reading. And when that list of search results pops up, almost invariably, Weinberg says, The first point of departure is to go to Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia is their answer? Wikipedia is the starting point. Contrary to how many, many misconceptions, Wikipedia has somewhere between 15 and 17 different kinds of locked pages that can only be touched by high-level Wikipedians who've earned street cred by making hundreds and hundreds of successful edits. Those pages, particularly about controversial topics, go to Wikipedia's locked page on gun control. It is one of the most fair-minded, balanced pages you're going to get, and you and I will not be able to touch it because we don't have the street cred for it. On Wikipedia pages that are not locked like that, most false information gets removed within 30 minutes. So he says the whole site is remarkably trustworthy. I don't know about you, but this is blowing my mind. And here's another thing. When you make a claim on Wikipedia, it has to come with a, a reference. And so what savvy Wikipedia users do as a shortcut is that they immediately go down to the references to see if they recognize a more authoritative source and immediately that's where they go. So fact checker skill number one, lateral reading. Google the name of the source. Skill number two, use Wikipedia. Fact checker skill number three sends us back to that Google search results page. 
they engage in something that we call click restraint. What does the average person tend to do? They engage in what we call promiscuous clicking. As we know from Google's research and a lot of research from internet companies, that somewhere between 60 and 70% of all clicks on a search are among the first two to three entries. What, what fact checkers do is they make a wise first click. They don't, they don't click on the first shiny object that they find, but they engage in, here's another thing that they do. We call it mining snippets. The snippets are the small little descriptions that come with, with Google under the results, and they look at the URL. And so when we compare the first click of a fact checker to, the, to a typical person, a fact checker spends about 25 seconds. Now, that seems like a small amount of time, but actually use a stopwatch when you do your next search and don't click on something for 25 seconds, whereas the average person clicks on something within five seconds. And typically, the fact checker is making a wise first click, and often the average person is going down a rabbit hole. So many of these things, Julie, can be, can essentially can be put to rest within 15 and 30 seconds and save the person who wants to forward it to their family and friends and their grandma, just having a few flexible skills. Now, again, they're not going to, to put to rest all of the errors that, we're, that we can make. But in the same way, when we're driving along the highway at 75 miles an hour and we want to pass the car in front of us, we do a split-second head and mirror check. That doesn't mean we won't get into an accident. But that little habit takes a big chunk out of, the, out of the many accidents that we could get into. And there are the equivalent of a few small habits on the internet that if we adopt them, we won't have an errorless search experience, but we will decrease the misinformation that we forward to our friends and our loved ones. In other words, if we are not doing the work to assess the truth of stuff we see and share online, we're part of the problem. Sam Weinberg is a cognitive psychologist and professor of education at Stanford University. He's co-author of the upcoming book, A Citizen's Guide to the Internet, with Mike Caulfield. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. We've talked about several things contributing to this trust gap between the press and the people. There's the morass of misinformation online. There are all the ways the media, in its attempt to make money, has made it harder to tell the difference between reporting, opinion, and advertising. And there's that thorny misalignment of expectations about objectivity and bias. What we haven't talked about yet is the fact that even when consumers trust the source of the news, more and more of us are opting to just tune it out. The public is asking for a different journalism product. They're, they're rejecting the current one. They're avoiding it, and they certainly don't want to pay for it. According to Reuters Institute, almost half of Americans sometimes or often avoid reading or listening to the news. I actually went through several months like that recently myself, and I'm a journalist. It's my job to stay up on stuff like that. So is there something deeper than trust ailing this relationship between the American people and the free press? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. When you ask people, like, why are you avoiding news? When they ask people on that, it's because it, it's depressing me. It's negatively affecting my mood. Um, it makes me feel powerless. This is David Bornstein. He is a longtime journalist who had his own epiphany about all of this. I had a personal experience um, with my father uh, shortly after my mother died. He, um, he was really low. And I used to call him late at night because he liked to stay up watching TV. And one day he, um, you know, he had this heaviness in his voice and he just said, you know, Dave, I'm convinced that human beings are worse than animals. And, you know, I just, I said to him, I said, Dad, are you watching CNN? And, and he was, you know, and that's what he used to do. That's how he would fall asleep watching sort of, you know, the cable news. And I got really angry and I thought, why do we pump this sort of toxic information into people 24-7 that have that that provides like a hall of mirrors view of the world, not an actual mirror of reality, but a very cracked mirror of reality with a particular bias for some of the worst things that are happening in the world every day. Um, and we tell people that this is reality. And, you know, I, I got really angry at my field for, in a very personal way, like on top of, for my dad, the, um, the suffering that he went through. And, 
you know, this is the way he had to engage with the world. He wanted to be informed. Bornstein started venting about this with his journalist colleagues and joined forces with another New York Times reporter named Tina Rosenberg to launch a column called Fixes. That looked at how people were responding to social problems and what we could learn from it. And the basic idea was that uh, journalism is very good at diagnosing problems, at letting people know what the ills of the world are, where the the violence and corruption and... um, you know, malfeasance are, uh, but it's not very good at helping people understand sort of their treatment options. What are, what are the emerging pathways and possibilities and what evidence is associated with them and what can we learn from success and failure? So that was the basic premise of the column. So we had really good response from the public. So there was a sense that, wow, the public seems to really want to learn about how to solve problems, not just that problems exist. Armed with that insight, Bornstein and Rosenberg founded the Solutions Journalism Network. They've trained thousands of journalists at news outlets around the world to incorporate solutions into their reporting. Now, Bornstein says it often feels unnatural to reporters at first. I think journalism has, you know, has developed a kind of theory of change of how journalism works that really grows out of, um, you know, kind of the idea of, of muckraking. There's a famous quote by Louis Brandeis, um, Louis Brandeis, where he says, um, sunlight is said to be the best disinfectant, which is basically the idea that the journalists sort of root out the dark corners of society. And then once we highlight those problems, a process will come into, um, in, into working that will root out those problems. When you ask people in a community, you know, why do you trust a particular news organization? Um, They don't tell you because they check their facts rigorously. They usually say things like, I trust them because they have my back. Now, if you're a news organization and you want to show to your community that you genuinely have their back and all you're doing is reporting every day on everything that's wrong in the community, first of all, people aren't going to say, well, how do you have our back by telling us how awful our community is? I mean, you're just like a smoke alarm that just won't stop beeping and eventually people just take out the battery of it because it's too annoying. Now, Bornstein says shedding light on dark corners of society has served America well for a long time. It helps spark all kinds of changes that make our lives better today, like food, drug, and workplace safety laws. But 21st century America needs something more. The pace of change is much quicker than it used to be. You know, we, we don't have 20 years to solve the climate crisis. We have to surface new ideas and emerging innovations much more rapidly and cross-pollinate them and circulate them. And I'm constantly thinking, well, if you only knew what they were doing in Cleveland or if you only knew what they were doing in Rochester, you would have more of a sense of agency against your problems. Is there evidence that you can bring about change as effectively when your focus is, here's the good stuff that's going on? So I wouldn't say the good stuff. It is the, it's the stuff that's getting results. <laughs> Got it. Describe for me the difference. What, what is the difference between solutions journalism and good news reporting? Well, the typical solutions journalism story will look at what we call a positive deviant. So you have, you know, I don't know, something like 5,000 hospitals in the United States. Um, they all have some, you know, similar problems. Hospital acquired infections would be one of them. Don't just report on the worst hospital in the system and tell us how outrageous it is. Also go and report on the positive deviants, the ones that are outperforming the others. And is now is that a good news story to show that, you know, out of 5,000 hospitals, there's maybe 100 or 200 that are doing much, much better than the other 4,800? Well, you could say, well, that's not very good news. Those 4,800 should be doing better. But by focusing on the ones that are achieving better results, you not only inject outrage into the system for the negative performance, but you create a benchmark for better performance. You create pressure to move the system in the direction of the positive deviance. These are not stories that are usually, you know, crying for attention. You know, we used to say that the problems scream, but the solutions whisper. You described the experience, the conversation you had with your father that was that created some a, a real personal desire to to make some change. Um, how, if you could imagine having a conversation with your father in that moment where he had spent the the evening watching Solutions Journalism CNN, 
Um, how do you hope that conversation might have been different? Like, what do you want people, when you're doing solutions journalism, what, what do you want for the people who are going to read or listen or watch that? Yeah, it's such a great question. I, you know, we talk a lot about rigorous hope in our network or in our organization, which is not like a Pollyannish idea of like, let's make people hopeful. But what is rigorous hope or what is what we call hope with teeth? It's the awareness of the plausible possibilities that are in our midst. You know, we don't have to make this stuff up. There are people already doing smart things that are saving lives in hospitals, that are getting young people through school, that are reducing in some corners of America systemic racism, you know, that are creating fairer structures in a whole bunch of areas. These things are already happening. There's more care, competence, and decency than we realize. And in fact, it's a much bigger story than the um, outrage. And so when you're able to show people that there's actually quite a lot of basis um, for being hopeful, credibly hopeful, we can't be going soft on the problems today. The problems are really urgent. But if we just make you know, the problems and the, the violence and the corruption the measure of our attention, then we really will lose people from the conversation, we will lose the agency and the energy of the people we need to, you know, to build something better. David Bornstein is co-founder and CEO of the Solutions Journalism Network. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for your questions. I, 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 I uh, really enjoyed talking with you. It was a pleasure. The Solutions Journalism Network collaborates with hundreds of media outlets around the world, from the BBC and The Atlantic to maybe even your local newspaper. Many of those stories are collected for easy access on their website, solutionsjournalism.org. And if a solutions focus is something you feel is missing from your preferred media sources, don't be afraid to ask for it. Work with reporters in your community to make the news work better for you and your neighbors. Write to the editor. Buy a subscription so they have the resources to do this kind of reporting. And don't forget to do the basic bit of fact-checking before you share a news story on your own social media feeds. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops and Kimberly Beck with help from me, Elizabeth Miller, and Sam Payne. Our sound designers are Trent Reimschussel, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.